0: April is National Poetry Month. Who's into poetry? All right. Who's not into poetry? All right. Try to make it good either way. Uh, So this is our annual poetry service in which we uh, uh, celebrate and explore the life and legacy of a particular poet. So I suspect many of you, whether you like poetry or not, probably have had at least one or a handful of poems that just really resonated with you without knowing anything about where it came from or who wrote it or anything, and that's that's fine. But it can be that learning about a poet's background can really give a depth to a, a poem and make it more even, deeply resonant. And in recent years, we've focused on Elizabeth Bishop, Gwendolyn Brooks, Mary Oliver, uh, Emily Dickinson, Sylvia Plath. And in the future, I look forward to sharing with you about other major poets, including uh, Shishlo Miloš, um, Denise Levertov, uh, Audre Lorde, and more. My best guess at this time is that I'm, I'm interested next year in potentially us exploring the early 17th century poet John Donne, often celebrated as the preeminent representative of the metaphysical poets. Uh, But today, as a bridge from Women's History Month in March to National Poetry Month in April, I'd like to invite us to explore the life and legacy of Adrienne Rich, who died just a little more than a decade ago. She was a feminist icon, one of the most widely read and influential poets of the second half of the 20th century, and is credited with bringing the oppression of women and the oppression of lesbians to the forefront of poetry. So I was inspired to preach this sermon by a recent wonderful biography of her titled The Power of Adrienne Rich by Hillary Holliday. Or another good starting point is her career-spanning collection titled Selected Poems, 1950 to 2012. And and that's quite a a change in our culture, right, from 1950 to to 2012 um, when she was writing. Uh, There are a few people that I own their collected works, but for most people, unless I'm really serious about them, I don't need to read every poet they ever ever wrote. Uh, So I'll just, I'll I'll read the highlights. She was uh, born in 1929 and she lived just about an hour away from, from here, an apartment overlooking Wyman Park in Baltimore, if any of you have ever been by there. Regarding her childhood, a quote from the psychologist Carl Jung comes to mind The greatest burden a child must bear is the unlived life of their parent, that the parent then imposes upon them, either consciously or unconsciously. That dynamic in a very conscious way, as well as a kind of a very shadowy way, was at play with Rich's father. He was a rising star on the faculty of Johns Hopkins Medical School, and he decided, I'm going to do everything in my power to make my firstborn child a genius. No pressure, right? (laughs) So here's a photo of uh, Adrienne when she was three years old along with her mother. So how many of you who have either been parents or have children in your life remember that first time or that first few times when that child could sit upright on their own? Do you remember that? And just think about how old they were and just kind of have that in your mind. So as soon as Rich was able to sit upright at a piano, her father didn't just hire a piano teacher, he hired someone from the renowned Peabody Conservatory in Baltimore to give her lessons. That sounds very intense to me, uh, but it's also true that by age four, Rich was playing Mozart with a prodigy's ease. Now, does that sound unbelievable, a four-year-old playing Mozart? Now, it's true that she was performing these feats about 50 years before camcorders were um, commonplace. But with some light Googling, I quickly found a video of an impressive four-year-old pianist. So let's listen to that now. Welcome. Join us. Come on in. Uh, Thank you. Will you play something for us? (laughs) It's only 20 seconds, but I think you get the idea. She's pretty good. Uh, and uh, you can Google, I also found very quickly, uh, a five-year-old um, uh, Italian pianist who was playing Mozart with incredible uh, impressiveness. So uh, there's, anyway, uh, your mileage may vary on whether that's a good use of uh, good parenting or bad parenting, uh, or somewhere in between. Uh, Audrey and Rich was also reading and writing by age four and by age five, was spending time every day copying out passages from Blake and from Keats and from other poets, uh, all men, that her father wanted her to know. This photo is from when she was six. And, and when she was six, her father had paid to have her first collection of 37 poems independently published. So although she continued to be an extremely talented uh, musician uh, through high school, this is her high school graduation photo, when she was 12 years old, she had a dream in which her piano magically transformed into a desk. And by age 16, she had a real inner clarity that she really wanted to be a writer, not a musician. And let's all be clear that in Rich's words, her father's parenting was egotistical, It was tyrannical, and it was terribly wearying. At the same time, she said, it is also true that he taught me to believe in hard work and to write and to rewrite. And he taught me to feel that even as a woman, at a very young age, the power of language was mine and that I could share in it if I wanted to. Some of you may be wondering, where was her mother in all this? Uh, Rich's recollection was that her mother was mostly passive in the face of her father's incredibly domineering parenting style. And around 1959, as Rich was turning 30, she wrote this poem in the third person about her sense of herself as trying to differentiate herself from her mother. She said, nervy, glowering, your daughter wipes the teaspoons and grows in another way. Her mind full to the wind, I see her plunge, breasted and glancing at the currents, taking the light upon her at least as beautiful as any boy. Or helicopter. (laughs) I love that. (laughs) At least as beautiful as any boy or helicopter. Poised, still coming, her fine blades making the air wince. No promises then, but delivered. Palpable hours. Let me give you a bit more of the traditional context in which it came to be that Audrey and Rich was to grow into this feminist icon. So she attended college at Radcliffe. This is a photo of her senior year in college. Uh, The then female uh, sister school of the then all male Harvard College. At that time in the late 1940s, she did not have a single female professor. In the entire four years at college at that time, there was only one female professor to be had, and that was in the history department, where she never took that class. Nevertheless, she persisted. And in 1951, in her final semester in college, the renowned poet W.H. Auden chose her first adult collection of poetry titled A Change of World to receive the Yale Series of Younger Poets Award. It also, uh, this book also earned praise from the New York Times, Book Review, The New Yorker, and from the Atlantic Monthly. In 1952, she began graduate school at Merton College, part of the University of Oxford in England. Uh, there, she got married to an economics professor named Alfred Conrad, and in fairly quick succession, they had a total of three sons in 55, 57, and 59, respectively. In between the birth of her second and third sons, she gave a significant speech at her old high school in Baltimore. She publicly named this tension that she was feeling inside herself, that she was aware a number of other women were also feeling, between the social societal expectations around motherhood and this inner longing to pursue what, what is my individual potential. Keep in mind that that prescient speech from Rich was in 1958. That's five years before Betty Friedan was going to write The Feminine Mystique and help launch second wave feminism. So she really was kind of ahead of her time. Here's a poem Rich wrote in 1955. It's the year her first son was born. It was titled Living in Sin. In the words of one literary critic, she was trying to reconcile the genuine pleasures that she found in marriage and motherhood with this uncanny feeling that she was performing a tedious bit part in a play that felt like it would never end. So as a married woman, she wasn't living in sin in that kind of traditional, you know, moralistic way. But what she was inviting her readers to see is what if the real sin is a woman living in a way that betrays her potential in the service of keeping the patriarchy going? Here's the poem, Living in Sin. She had thought the studio would keep itself, no dust upon the furniture of love, half heresy to wish the taps less vocal, the pains relieved of grime, A plate of pears, a piano, a Persian shawl, a cat stalking the picturesque amusing mouse had risen up at his urging. Not that at five each separate stair would writhe under the milkman's tramp. That morning light so coldly would delineate the scraps of last night's cheese and three sepulchral bottles. That on the kitchen shelf among the saucers a pair of beetle eyes would fix her own envoy from some village in the moldings. Meanwhile, he, with a yawn, sounded a dozen notes upon the keyboard and declared it out of tune, shrugged at the mirror, rubbed his beard, went out for cigarettes, while she, jeered by the minor demons, pulled back the sheets, made the bed, and found a towel to dust the tabletop and let the coffee pot boil over on the stove. By evening, she was back in love again, though not so holy, but throughout the night, she woke sometimes to feel the daylight coming, like a relentless milkman up the stairs. So we've already seen the ways that Audrey and Rich was often ahead of her time, but I don't want us to miss the rapid changes that really needed to happen for her to become this full-blown, full-blown feminist icon that she would soon become. Consider that in 1967, now, as many of you know, you know, the 60s didn't really begin in 1960, right? They more began in, like, 1965. Uh, Consider that in 67, when she was teaching in Columbia University's MFA program, she required her students to read a significant amount of poetry. But she included no women in her syllabus. No Levertov, no Plath, no Sexton, no Sarton. Although she was more than a decade into publicly wrestling with this burgeoning feminist consciousness, she had not yet deconstructed all the internalized sexism from the patriarchal context in which she had been raised. Her marriage was also under increasing strain. Although she and Alfred continued to have strong feelings for each other, he rarely opened up emotionally and lived with episodes of deep depression. Here's the first stanza of a poem she wrote about this time in their marriage titled like this, together. Wind rocks the car. We sit parked by the river. Silence between our teeth. Birds scatter across islands of broken ice. Another, another time, I'd have said, Canada geese, knowing that you love them. A year, 10 years from now, I'll remember this. This sitting like drugged birds in a glass cage, not why, only that we were here like this together. Here's the end of another similar poem titled Tear Gas, written in 1969 about wrestling with what was to be the impending end of her marriage. She said, I want you to listen when I speak badly, not in poem, but in tears, not my best but my worst, that these repetitions, these repetitions are beating their way toward a place where we can no longer be together. That's a powerful line. These repetitions are beating their way to a place where we can no longer be together, where my body no longer will demonstrate outside your stockade, and wheeling through its blind tears will make for the open air of another kind of action. She says parenthetically, I am afraid. But that's not the worst way to live. Here's a photo of Rich four years later in 1973. Looking back, she is remembered again for also for being a lesbian icon. But at this point, it would be another year before she began a love affair with a woman and still another year still before she would come out publicly as a lesbian in 1975. It would also not be accurate to say that she perceived her previous time as being in the closet. In her words, there was just so much I didn't know about in my childhood. (laughs) She just, you know, could look back and see some kind of same-sex attraction, but she didn't really feel closeted before that. And she did have an authentic connection for many years with her husband. Gender and sexuality are messy and complicated, and many of us contain multitudes. Indeed, she once wrote about herself, you know, growing up, you know, being born in 1929 and being from the South and all of that. She said, sometimes I feel like I have seen too long from too many disconnected angles. I don't know if any of you feel like that, like it's hard to reconcile everything. She said, within me, I feel white and Jewish and anti-Semitism and racism and anti-racism and once married and lesbian and middle class and feminist and ex matriot Southerner. It's all there. I feel split at the root, she said, and that I will never bring them whole. Along these lines of feeling an irreconcilable plurality of identities swirling within oneself, she also wrote a a poem titled The Stranger, about sometimes feeling a stranger to one's self and feeling herself to be androgynous, containing either both male and female or neither male nor female in particular. She said, I am the androgyne, I am the living mind you fail to describe in your dead language. The lost noun, the verb surviving only in the infinitive. The letters of my name are written under the lids of the newborn child. She continued to pour her life and experience onto the page, and she was receiving increasing recognition. In 1974, she won the National Book Award for maybe her best-known book of poetry, Diving Into the Wreck. Notably, she refused to accept the National Book Award on her own behalf. Prior to the winner being announced, she didn't know if she was going to win or not, she made a pact with Alice Walker and with Audre Lorde that if she won the award, she would split the honor with them. She said in her speech, we, Audre Lorde, Audrey Rich, and Alice Walker, together accept this award in the name of all women whose voices continue to go unheard in a patriarchal world. And we believe that we can enrich ourselves more in supporting and giving each other than in competing with each other. And that poetry, if it is poetry, exists in a realm beyond ranking and comparison. We're just not gonna play your game. Two years later, in 1976, I think she continued to look incredibly youthful for for a long time in her life. Uh, Two years later, in 1976, she published another of her most successful and well-known books, a volume of nonfiction titled, some of you may have heard of this as well, Of Woman Born, Motherhood as Experience and as Institution. I invite you to hear just the final paragraph of that quite influential book. She wrote, We need to imagine a world in which every woman is the, presi- the presiding genius of her own body. The presiding genius of her own body. In such a world, women will truly create life, bring forth not only children, if we choose, but the visions and the thinking necessary to sustain, console, and alter human existence, a new relationship to the universe. Sexuality, politics, intelligence, power, motherhood, work, community, intimacy will develop new meanings. Thinking itself will be transformed. This is where we have to not end. She said, this is where we have to begin. Two years later, in 1978, at the peak of her fame, she published what many literary critics consider to be the greatest poetry collection of her career, titled The Dream of a Common Language. The most famous poem in that volume is titled Power. It plays on the metaphor of Marie Curie winning the Nobel Prize for her pioneering research on radioactivity, only to later die from complications from long-term exposure to radiation. Rich saw these powerful parallels in the sacrifices she had made in mining her own experience to uh, create art. She said about Curie and also about herself, she died a famous woman denying her wounds, denying that her wounds came from the same source as her power." My own favorite line from Audrey and Rich and the way I first learned about her is toward the end of a long poem titled Natural Resources. It's also from the dream of a common language. She wrote, and I think this is so applicable still today. My heart is moved by all that I cannot save. My heart is moved by all that I cannot save. So much has been destroyed. I have to cast my lot with those who age after age, perversely, and with no extraordinary power, choose to reconstitute the world. I think it's a remarkable poem. There's so much more to say about her, but for now, let me move toward my conclusion with just a few highlights about the end of her life. In 1986, at age 57, Stanford University invited her to be a professor of English and feminist studies, a position she held for seven years. This appointment gave her much-needed health insurance, a significant boost of financial security, and well-deserved academic standing at the end of her career. Uh, then in 1994, at age 65, she was awarded a um, MacArthur Genius Grant, which is not only a nice thing to get, but comes with, at that point with a cash prize of $625,000. At that point, surely she could have rested on her laurels but she remained active and prolific in her final years. In her 70s, as she reached what was to be the final decade of her life, she increasingly suffered um, the complications of rheumatoid arthritis, which is what ultimately um, ended her life. Still, in that final decade, she published four new volumes of poetry and three new volumes of essays. She averaged a new book practically every year while still traveling widely to give readings and talks. Audreen Rich died in 2012 at the age of 82, and she left behind a powerful legacy as a feminist, as a lesbian, as a poet, as a mother, and as so much more. In the words of her biographer, her strengths and her wounds, they're just all right out there on the page, or in Rich's own words, I am my art. So in that spirit, as we hold in our heart the life and legacy of Audrey and Rich, as we open our hearts and minds and spirits, what does this awaken within you? What do you feel led to create? How do you feel led to leverage your skills? What's been given to you in the work of justice? Let's rise and together and sing a song written out of the lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender rights movement. Number 170, We Are a Gentle, Angry People. We'll sing all the verses.